We've all been enjoying the Christmas season. We enjoy the lights and the Christmas trees and the tinsels and and the uh, calorie-intensive, delectable delights with which we stuff ourselves. And these things are fun and enjoyable. But we all know that the nostalgic, sentimental things are not the real true heart of Christmas. We know that the true meaning of Christmas is found in Jesus Christ. We enjoy our Christmas gifts, but Paul describes God's Christmas gift to us. In 2 Corinthians 9, he says, But thanks be to God for His indescribable gift, Jesus Christ. Christmas is the time when we're reminded of that gift. Jesus Christ became a man that He might have a body. That body was the vehicle of the revelation of God to us in word and deed. And that body also is the vehicle of His sacrifice for us. If there had been no Christmas, there would be no body for our Savior. Without a body, there would be no sacrifice. With no sacrifice, then you and I would be living here dead in our sins. So thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. And that is the true heart of the Christmas season. It's appropriate, therefore, that today, the Sunday after Christmas, we continue our studies in Matthew. We're in Matthew 26, verses 1 to 30, which deal with the preparations for the death of Jesus Christ. It's appropriate at this time, as I say, because Christmas is the prelude to Good Friday and Easter. Through the body in which he was born, he was able to die for us that we might have salvation. In this passage, we see the preparations for his death, the plotting of the Pharisees together, the anointing of Jesus for his burial. We see the betrayal by Judas and the celebration of the Last Supper by Christ with his disciples. The theme that best expresses what's happening in these uh, in this section we'll look at today is is best found in John's Gospel. Let me read to you chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. We'll see here repeated in this passage this theme that Jesus Christ is voluntarily laying down his life for us. He's not the victim of circumstances. He's not, uh, his death is not the tragic end uh, of a heroic idealist. Rather, we'll see that he is voluntarily giving himself up. He's the one who's in control, he's the one who's dealing the cards. We see this very clearly in the first paragraph of the section. And it came about that when Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man is to be delivered up for crucifixion. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas. And they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they were saying, not during the festival, lest a riot occur among the people. The chief priests and the elders plotted to kill Jesus. They had been opposing him for a long time. 
He was an irritant to them and a threat to their position. He threatened to overturn and upset the, the status quo in which they enjoyed great interest. They were recognized as the religious leaders of the community. They had great material gain and were very comfortable in their position. And here Jesus comes as a young upstart religious teacher threatening to draw the crowds away from them. The last straw had come recently. Just a few days before this, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, creating quite a commotion. Let's look again in John's Gospel to find the background for what's going on in, in uh, Matthew 26. John chapter 11, verses 47 to 53. After Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But a certain one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation should not perish. Now this he did not say on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but that he might also gather together into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Even in this, the plotting and scheming of the Pharisees, the religious leaders, we see that God was in control. Jesus was not merely the victim of their evil schemes. Caiaphas, the high priest, unwittingly prophesied about the death of Christ. He said it is expedient that one man should die rather than that the whole nation should die. And in saying that, he articulated a theology of the death of Christ, the theology of the substitutionary atonement. Of course, he meant it differently. He meant that it was better that Jesus should die than that we let him continue on, uh, rouse up the mob, stir them up to rebellion, and bring the wrath of the Romans down upon us, destroy our nation. And yet God had him speak a prophecy as high priest and speak about the significance of the death of Christ. The implications are that, that we deserve to die, and yet he is dying in our place. We are sinners. We may not like to think of ourselves as such. We may be very good people compared to other people, and yet, compared to God's standard, we all fall short, far short. We may not do that many things that we think are, are wrong, and yet all of us are very guilty when it comes to the sins of omission. We're told to love our neighbor as ourselves. And yet, which of us can say, I've done the things that Mark sang about? We're told to love God with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength. And yet none of us can say that we have done such. We fall short of what God requires of us. And therefore we are sinners, deserving of God's judgment. And yet, because God loved us, he became a man in the person of Christ, was born on Christmas Day, 
and then died as our substitute. And it's that about which, uh, about that, that Caiaphas unwittingly spoke. Well, the Pharisees and the Sadducees had met together and they decided then that Jesus must die. It was not right to let him go around raising dead people, stirring up the crowds. When we pick up the narrative again in Matthew 26, now they're determining how he's going to die. They said, we must uh, uh, seize him by stealth and kill him, but not during the festival. Ancient writers tell us that, that each year during the Passover celebration, tens of thousands of people would crowd into Jerusalem from Babylonia and Egypt and Syria and Asia Minor and all over the world. Anywhere from 200,000 to a million pilgrims would come for this religious festival. Far too numerous to be housed in the city. They would bring their tents and have a big camp out all around the hills uh, of, of Jerusalem. The sporting goods companies, of course, uh, enjoyed their presence quite a bit. Sold a lot of tents. Uh, but the religious leader said, no, we must not kill him at this time. It'd be too dangerous. The crowds would be restless. They'd have a religious, uh, there'd be an aura, religious aura about them, and they might actually think that he is the Messiah, and they might riot against us. No, we'll do it at a different time. And yet we see that Jesus Christ is the one who's dealing the cards. He's the one who's controlling the events. He says in verse 2, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man is to be delivered up for crucifixion. He's determining the time of his crucifixion. It's important. uh, It was important to synchronize that with the Passover celebration because he was intending to communicate something about the significance of his death through timing it along with the Passover. The uh, Passover celebrates, of course, God's deliverance from Egypt. Our God is a sovereign God and is has arranged the events of redemptive history to foreshadow that ultimate act of salvation, the death of Christ. The Israelites of old were in bondage in Egypt. The Egyptians had disobeyed God. They had hardened their hearts. And therefore, God said he was sending his angel of judgment to pour out his wrath upon the nation. But he made a way of of escape for his people. He said if they would take an unblemished lamb observe it for a few days to make sure it was free of of stain, then slay it, paint its blood on their doorposts, and then have a meal and consume the whole lamb, then they would be spared. They would be delivered from the judgment coming upon the, the whole nation. In the same way, Christ is our Passover lamb. God picked out his unblemished lamb, Jesus Christ, unstained from sin, put him in the public gaze during his public ministry for some three years that he might be observed and seen to be without sin, and then God slayed him. It's true that the religious leaders plotted to have him killed. Judas betrayed him. The Romans crucified him, but God was the one who slayed him. And now he offers to us salvation. If we will but take the blood of Christ and paint it, so to speak, on our hearts, if we will not merely nibble at him, be interested but uncommitted, but if we will eat 
of him in his entirety. Take him for all that he is, Lord and Savior. Accept him into our lives as such. Then God will give to us the same deliverance. Deliverance this time not merely from death, but from eternal death. And deliverance from his coming judgment upon sin. Now these are the things that Jesus wanted to communicate through his death. And it's for these reasons that he determined the timetable of his death and made it fall during the Passover so that he could communicate to the world that he is God's Passover lamb. We see further evidences of Jesus' control of these events as we proceed with the passage. In verses 6 to 13, we find a story of a symbolic action which Jesus calmly, deliberately invested with meaning as a symbol of his death. Now, when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, and she poured it upon his head as he reclined at table. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this and said, What is the point of this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good deed to me. For the poor you have with you always, but you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume upon my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done shall also be spoken of in memory of her. Now, John tells us in his account of this story that this woman was Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Jesus was in their hometown, Bethany, probably during the same time in which he raised Lazarus from the dead. Maybe it was this, this meal was a celebration that very evening. They're in the home of one Simon, apparently a leper whom Jesus had healed. And during the dinner, Mary goes and she gets a, a vial, an alabaster bottle full of costly perfume. We're told in the other Gospels that the value of it was 300 denarii, which would be about a year's wage for a common worker. And she broke and spilled the whole thing of it, about a pound of perfume, on Jesus, anointing his body with it. Well, the disciples immediately jumped, up, jumped on her. Why this waste, they said. This could have been sold and the money given to the poor. And certainly their concern was legitimate. Jesus himself had a very high regard and concern for the poor. We see from passages like the, the one that uh, Mark referred to earlier in his song that Jesus made our treatment of the hungry and the naked and, uh, and those in prison a mark of whether we are true believers or not. I certainly get the uh, feeling from reading the Gospels that Jesus, if given a large sum of money, would have given it to the poor rather than build a, a large, uh, elaborate cathedral of some sort. And yet, Jesus defends her. He says, why do you bother her? For she has done a good deed for me. He defends her because... He's desiring to communicate to them and to us that devotion to him is the chief of Christian virtues. He says you always have the poor with you. And he's certainly not uh, 
downplaying the, the value of concern for the poor. He said that's essential in the, his speech in the, recorded in the last chapter. And yet he says, I am more important. You don't always have me with you. What she was, has done is a spontaneous act of love and devotion. And she has exemplified for them the value of a devotion to Christ. The value, as Jack said, of being in love with Christ, not merely tipping our hat to him. The disciples were the ones who looked very practical. Mary looked extravagant and wasteful. Yet Jesus commends her. When we look further at the uh, account, the gospel account, we find that in the, the day of crucifixion, it was Mary who loved her Lord so ardently, so faithfully, that she came and stood at the feet, feet of the cross, the foot of the cross, until he died, risking her own life because she was identifying herself publicly with a man who was being crucified for treason. And where were the disciples, these practical men? Well, they loved so coldly as to flee and hide. Well, it's Mary's devotion to her Lord that he is commending. Let me read to you A.B. Bruce's comments on this uh, section from his book, The Training of the Twelve. In making love the test and measure of excellence, Jesus, Jesus differs widely from the world, religious and irreligious. Pharisees and Sadducees, scrupulous religionists, and unscrupulous men of no religion agree in disliking ardent, enthusiastic, chivalrous devotion, even in the most noble cause. They are wise and prudent, and their philosophy might be embodied in such maxims as these. Be not too broad in your sentiments, too warm in your sympathies, too keen in your sense of duty. Never allow your heart to get the better of your head or your principles to interfere with your interest. So widely diffused is a dislike to earnestness, especially in good, that all nations have their proverbs against enthusiasm. The world is prosaic, not poetic, in temperament, prudential, not impulsive. It abhors eccentricity in good or evil. It prefers a dead level of mediocrity, moderation, and self-possession. Its model man is one who never forgets himself, either by sinking below himself in folly or wickedness, or by rising above himself and getting rid of meanness, pride, selfishness, cowardice, and vanity, and devotion to a noble cause. The twelve were like the world in their temperament at the time of the anointing. They seemed to have regarded Mary as a romantic, quixotic, crazy creature, and her action as absurd and indefensible. And yet Jesus commends her for her devotion. Much as the devotion of David was commended in the Old Testament for dancing before the ark as it came into the city, even though his wife despised his enthusiasm. Jesus commends her, first of all, because she is an example to them of this uncalculating, wholehearted devotion to her Lord. He commends her action, secondly, because it's a symbol of his own death. Notice in verse 13, he says, Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done shall also be spoken of in memory of her. Well, what gospel? Has the gospel been spoken of in the conversation previously? Well, no, it hadn't in words, and yet it had in symbol, in action. 
Because Jesus is referring to Mary's action of breaking this costly vial of perfume as being a symbol of his death. It's a symbol in at least two ways. First of all, both were motivated by love. Mary loved her Lord. He had taken her broken, meaningless, empty life and he'd healed it. He had purified her and made her whole. And in her love for him, she could do no other than act in such a devoted way. We wonder sometimes about ourselves, how we can experience the same love and cleansing and forgiveness and be cold-hearted towards our Savior. Jesus' action also came out of love. But that which is symbolized far surpasses the symbol. Mary loved because Jesus had first loved her. Jesus loved us in spite of our lovelessness. We didn't evoke his love. He didn't look down and say, oh, aren't those lovely creatures. He looked down and said, look at those spoiled brats. Rebellious, impudent creatures who have taken their uh, lives in their own hands, who have repudiated the just claim of God upon themselves. They've insisted on doing their own thing and living lives of selfishness and wickedness. And yet, in spite of this, he loved us enough to die for us. Her love, her uh, actions symbolize the death of Jesus in a second way as well, in that both were costly acts of self-sacrifice. The perfume jar, the perfume in the jar, were worth, in today's terms, ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000. Can you imagine having a uh, a bottle of perfume like that, being that expensive, bringing it out and breaking the whole thing and pouring it upon Jesus. I can imagine that that if I had some uh, expensive cologne, I might have come out and dabbed a little behind his ears. But she pours the whole thing and breaks it upon him. So wholehearted is her devotion to him. And it's symbolic of his sacrifice and devotion. As she broke the alabaster vial and poured out its contents for him, so he broke his own body and poured out his life for us. Again, the symbol, that which is symbolized is greater than the symbol. It was enough that Jesus should even become a man for us. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2 that his becoming a man itself was, a, was an act of enormous sacrifice and humiliation. Can you imagine what it would take for the Son of God to give up all of his divine prerogatives and become a little baby in a stinking stable on Christmas Day, be subject to uh, wet diapers and, and uh, hunger and, and uh, the need for sleep and putting up with ordinary people like you and me. And yet he did that. But not only did he do that, his sacrifice extended to the point of enduring shame and suffering and temptation, and even death for us. The scripture says that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. His sacrifice was to the extent that he took the curse of the law upon himself, that we might be freed. And Jesus commends Mary for her action, because it symbolized his own self-sacrificing love. And he says her action would be commemorated and proclaimed wherever the gospel was preached. Now notice that in this account, her name is not even given. 
In the three Gospels that mention this anointing, only one of them gives her name. Because it's not Mary herself that Jesus is, is out to commend. But it's her action. Her action which symbolizes both the devotion of one committed to him and symbolizes the gospel, the outpouring of his life for us. Well, John tells us that Judas was the one who was most upset over this action. He was the one who was most vocal in his complaints about the waste of pouring out this perfume. Now, John also adds that Judas was the one who kept the money box, and he liked to take a little each time he took some out to give to the poor or provide, buy provisions. Judas apparently had become a follower of Jesus out of mixed motives. We can imagine that he had been stirred by Jesus' preaching of the coming of the kingdom of God. Probably he was a calculating sort of person and felt, if I get in on this at the first of the movement, then when Jesus comes into his kingdom, I can be one of the top dogs in that kingdom. Certainly this was the aspiration of John and James as we read in Mark chapter 10. And yet by now it had become painfully obvious for Judas that his aspirations would not come to fruition. He was not going to get a place of honor because Jesus was not going to bring in his kingdom. At least he wasn't right then. Jesus had been talking recently about going up to Jerusalem to die. And all of Judas's hopes had been dashed in the rocks. His one last consolation was the fact that he could at least get something out of this whole arrangement by stealing from the money box. But now Jesus let this stupid woman waste all this money on this anointing perfume for him. He could have taken that, sold it, pocketed half of it, and given a large sum away to the poor. And nobody would have known the difference. This was a last straw for Judas. Jesus is letting him, letting this woman waste all of this uh, money and then defending her action before the disciples. So we read in verse 14 to 16. Then one of the twelve, named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me to deliver him up to you? And they weighed out to him thirty pieces of silver. And from then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray him. Judas made a deal. The deal was to betray his master for thirty pieces of silver. We're told in Exodus chapter 21 that if your ox gored somebody else's slave, then you were responsible. Your ox would have to die and you'd have to give that man 30 pieces of silver to compensate him for his loss so he could buy another slave. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was valued by Judas with the price of a slave. So perverting are the effects of sin upon one's one's mind and values. Now we can assume that the, that the uh, priest told Judas, let's try to figure out a way to, to catch him, but not during the festival. Wait till all the pilgrims have gone home. We don't want to stir up a, a riot and get into trouble ourselves. We want this to take place quietly. So Judas went off uh, somewhat contentedly, a little smirk on his face probably, thinking how clever he was to get something out of his following of Jesus. And he rejoined the disciples. And we will see in verses 17 to 25 that though Judas had covenanted to betray him, Jesus was still 
in control of his own fate. I lay down my life, he says, and no one takes it from me. Now on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Now when evening had come, he was reclining at table with the twelve disciples. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. And being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord. And he answered and said, He who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. For the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him. But woe to that man through whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. He said to him, You have said it yourself. Jesus arranged for the celebration of the Passover feast. One more thing that he needed to do before the time of the crucifixion. He did it somewhat secretively. He simply told his disciples, go to the, into the city to a certain man, tell him the teacher has need of your house, and is going to celebrate the Passover there. We know from the other Gospels that, that he also told him this man would be carrying a watering jar, which was unusual for a man. Normally women or slaves did that sort of work. So he, they would be able to recognize this man. It's possible that Jesus was acting secretively so that Judas would not be able to betray him before the celebration of this last important event before his death. They had the meal, and while they were at the meal, Jesus lets Judas know that he knows what's going on. One of you will betray me, he said. Judas was worried at this point. He thought, but nobody knew. I was very secreted, secretive. Nobody saw me come or go to make the deal with the chief priest. How does he know? And one by one, the other disciples said, Lord, it's not I, is it? And Jesus, uh, asking for reassurance, Jesus merely said, He who betrayed me is the one who dips his food in my bowl. And all that did, in all probability, was narrow the possibilities down to those at Jesus' end of the table. Judas was embarrassed that all the others asked for reassurance. And finally, he said, Rabbi, it is not I, is it? To which Jesus responds, Yes, Judas, you've even said so yourself. Now, he said this in secret, as the other Gospels tell us. If he had not, I'm sure that, that uh, Peter would have jumped on him with the bread knife in hand and slit his throat right there. Jesus was in control of his own fate. He knew that there was a betrayal. He knew who the betrayer was. We're told later in this chapter that he could have called down tens of thousands of angels from heaven to fight for him and defend him. Yet all he wanted to do was to manipulate the timing of his death. I lay down my life, he says, and no one takes it from me. We see in verse 24 the interplay of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. He says, The Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him. 
It's been prophesied, it's been ordained by God that I'm to be betrayed by a friend and, and hung on a cross. And yet, he also speaks of Judas as one who acts freely of his own accord. He said it would have been better for this man not even to have been born. He is fulfilling the plan of God, and yet he's not under divine compulsion. God's not forcing him to do something against his will. He's acting on his own, and yet he's fulfilling God's plan. Jesus has now forced Judas's hand. Judas and the chief priests wanted to wait until after the Passover, and yet Jesus has said, I know that you're betraying me. So Judas uh, flees from the Passover feast uh, uh, with the disciples. Jesus tells him, as the other Gospels uh, indicate, go and do what you have to do quickly. The other disciples didn't know what was going on, thought maybe he was buying more provisions or was going to give something to the poor. And Jesus and uh, Judas runs to the high priests. And he says, the gig is up. He's on to us. We've got to do it, and it's got to be tonight, or else the deal's off. I'm not going to be involved. And so quickly they throw together a scheme whereby they can, can catch him in the dark, try him uh, at nighttime when the, the masses are asleep, and stick him on the cross before everybody knows what's happening. Meanwhile, Jesus celebrates the rest of the Passover meal with his disciples. And he transforms that Passover meal into a memorial uh, meal for uh, symbolizing what he is about to go through in the cross. The Passover meal memorialized God's deliverance of the, of the Israelites from Egypt. Jesus transforms that into the Lord's Supper, which memorializes his deliverance of us and the judgment on sin. And while they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is to be shed on behalf of many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on, until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Jesus took the normal elements of the meal, the bread and the wine, and transformed them into symbols of his own body, broken for us, and his own blood poured out for us, that we might have new life. He says this blood is the blood of the covenant, which is to be shed on behalf of many for forgiveness of sins. Disciples immediately thought, I'm sure, of the, the new covenant recorded in and prophesied of in uh, Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. Jeremiah, God says this through Jeremiah, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach again each man his neighbor, and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. 
I will remember no more. Jeremiah prophesied this new covenant God would make with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Jesus is saying that he's affecting this covenant through his death. One day, the nation of Israel will again turn to, to God through Christ and experience his covenant, which they were promised. But, but now, Jesus is indicating, those who believe in him, we as a church, are benefactors of this covenant and are experiencing the provision of forgiveness of sins and the knowledge of God. And that, that is what is symbolized through this meal. Well, what amazes me throughout this whole passage is the calm, controlled way in which Jesus uh, reacts to all that's happening. He takes the simple anointing of his body, of a devoted follower, and transforms it into a beautiful symbol of his own coming death. In spite of the plans of his enemies, he uh, controls and dictates the timing of his own death to synchronize it with the Passover celebration to indicate that he is God's Passover lamb. And then he takes the Passover meal and injects it with new meaning as a memorial for the new Passover lamb. I think we can take great heart through what he has done, through what he does here. He's in control of his own circumstances. He's in control of himself throughout a time of intense crisis. Those of us who know him personally have him living within us. He's controlling our lives just as well. He's able to give us the control to be unfluttered by crises that come upon us. We don't have to become uh, irrational and anxious and uh, fretful during times of strain and even threat to our own lives. But by his power, we can remain confident of his own control of us. There are two basic responses to this passage that I think we should make. One is for those who do not know Jesus Christ personally. If you don't know him personally, what he's saying to you here is I have laid down my life. I've laid down my life for you voluntarily. Nobody took it from me. Out of love for you, because I wanted you to experience my goodness, my forgiveness, my power, my grace, I've given myself up as a sacrifice to cover your sins. All you have to do is come and take and eat, so to speak. He says, you must merely take me as your Savior and Lord. Partake of me personally. Just tell me you want it, and I'll give you uh, the benefits of my salvation. For those of us who know him as Savior and Lord already, I think this passage has one message to us. We as Mary should respond in loving devotion to him. She saw that her life was, was ruined apart from him. We too need to recognize that apart from him, our lives are, uh, are nothing. Filled with boredom and frustration and strife and meaninglessness, emptiness. How much we take these things for granted. And yet Jesus says to us, I lay down my life, no one takes it from me. Out of love for us, he has given himself up that we might have new life and have it abundantly. And I think the only appropriate response is to respond as Mary did, out of devotion to him, with worship and adoration, with hearts of praise. Let's pray.
Lord, you alone are worthy of our praise and adoration, of our attention. We want to make you the center of our lives. We confess that we take you for granted so much. The simple truths that we went over in the passage today are ones that we often forget. Lord, fill us with hearts of gratitude because we know that you did lay down your life voluntarily for us to redeem us, to cleanse us. Thank you that you have arrayed us in white robes of your righteousness and given us power that we might reign over sin now and will share in reigning the universe with you in the future. We thank you for what you've done for us. Amen.